Welcome to episode 114 of the Blooms and Barnacles podcast, where we talk about all things relating to James Joyce's Ulysses. I'm Dermot. I'm Kelly. How are you today, Dermot? I am good. <laughs> I am glad that you are good. <laughs> well, welcome to our episode. Um, we are the, blo- the, the podcast that talks about all things related to James Joyce's Ulysses. But did you know we are also a blog that occasionally talks about everything related to James Joyce's Ulysses? And I'm always excited when we get a new blog post out. So I want to talk about that right now at the top of the show. Um, I've just released, and you can find links on all of our social media or at our website. Bloomsandbarnacles.com. And the title of this new blog post is The Women of Ulysses, Lizzie Twig. Um, Can you give our listeners a little preview of this blog post if they want to check it out? Yeah, she's kind of an obscure fairly forgotten minor poet who mm-hmm. used to get published in the Freeman's Journal. Uh, Can I correct you? The United Irishman. United Irishman. Which is Arthur and, Griffith's uh, publication. Right, right. And published in that until all the boys ganged up on her and got her fired. Okay. And it's a very sad story. Mm-hmm. And it seems she was badly done by. It does. And if you'd want to know more about that, I would recommend you check out our blog post. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dermot has done some interesting artwork for it. So, would you like to talk about your little bit of artwork here? Yeah, we used, um, we had a very low resolution photograph of Lizzie and we tried to upgrade it using artificial intelligence, by which we mean my brain. And uh, I is did. That, is that how you see yourself? <laughs> and uh, That makes me sad. <laughs> you must find an AI making that joke. Uh I don't. Right. I don't want to talk about that. Let's keep moving. On. <laughs> um, so it's, anyway, it's I, really I, nice. I took the photograph and I tried to like soften it and blend all the awful mm-hmm. digital compression into it. There might be a better one out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I have not found it. Yeah, so. she was known for having very large eyes, so I tried mm-hmm. to keep that. Yes, and uh, colored it so it's slightly mm-hmm. faster colorization, but it's it kind of cleaned it up a little bit anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, yeah, because somebody has been forgotten, so I didn't want to just draw mm-hmm. one of my usual cartoons. Yeah. So it's you know not as good as I would have liked, but you know, nothing yeah. I do is. So. Yeah. And you you said the this this post moved you. Yeah. In a, an emotional fashion. Yeah, because it's somebody who clearly their life went completely off the rails, and the sad thing is she loved the outdoors, and her poems aren't bad at all. I've read some of them, very melancholic, and much, probably much better than the mm. poems of the people that tried to get her out. And uh, she got so sick in the end, she couldn't leave the city. So she was trapped, mm. trapped in the city, and she couldn't see the countryside. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's one of those sad ends to a life. But her, the obituary in the Limerick newspapers made her sound pretty... All obituaries sort of do, Mm -hmm. but you can usually read between the lines and she seemed like she was Mm -hmm. okay. Is it uncommon for a person to get such a lengthy obituary, and Mm -hmm. especially for a a woman at that time? Yeah, in Limerick too. Like, Mm -hmm. it wouldn't be like the bastion of feminism. No offense, Limerick, but, you know, 1930s, it wouldn't have been the bastion of feminism. Nowhere in Ireland was, so... Yeah, yeah, it wasn't... wasn't, uh, Yeah, genteel in that way. Yeah. So. Um, so you might not even remember Lizzie showing up in Ulysses, but she is briefly in Lestragonians. Um, so go ahead, reread that bit in Ulysses, and also check out our blog post at bloomsandbarnacles.com. So uh, let's start talking about this episode, which is about Ulysses' seventh episode, Aeolus. Mm-hmm. And Dermot has also done, he's our resident artist, if you hadn't guessed, he's also done some artwork to accompany this episode can you talk about that artwork yeah it's about saint peter holding the the keys to the gates of heaven Mm -hmm. one gold one silver it looks like saint peter's if he were in like uh like a 
a Dis- like a 60s Disney movie. Yes, yeah. <laughs> More like a, a King Triton, I think, in Little Mermaid. Okay, that's yeah. 80s. Yeah. That works for me. You can also check that artwork out at... Bloomsandmarkets.com. Accompanying the show notes for this episode, um, you know, which will include all kind of links where you can reach us and also all the reading I did for this episode, which was lengthy. Of course, you can also see Dermot's artwork at our social media. You can find us at Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook right now, as well as YouTube. Uh, a few shout outs before we get into the meat of the episode. Thank you so much to all of our donors who've helped us out in one-time payments over on PayPal or a recurring monthly subscription on Patreon. That really does help us keep the lights on here. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do so at patreon.com slash barnaclecast. And if you do, you get a few bonus perks. Uh, You get early access to all of our episodes. You get video version of our episodes, which Dermot does a great job with. And you get a patrons-only bonus episode, and we have just released our most recent one for July. Would you like to talk about our July bonus episode? We, we watched the 1967 Ulysses movie, mm-hmm. talked about it, and uh, showed clips of it. Yes. So, and other clips of other mm-hmm. movies that we thought would have been interesting style alternatives or options mm-hmm. for the... Had they had the resources. Yeah. Um, financial, mostly. Yeah. But yeah, technological, some too. Yeah, yeah um, I'd say we're both kind of cinephiles in our mm-hmm. way, and so we really like talking about film, and so Patreon Patreon has allowed us to indulge that a little bit, so thank you. Um, make sure to check it out, and I think we want to get maybe a, a little bit, we're very proud of this episode, so get a little preview of that on our YouTube channel, and also maybe drop an audio preview in our the free feed. You know, but it's a very visual episode, so yeah. it is worth checking out that video. There'd be no point just mm-hmm. listening to it, I think it's mm-hmm. best to see. Yeah. yeah. A few other things, if you'd like to support us in a non-monetary fashion, tell a friend about us or drop us a review on your favorite uh, podcasting platform. Um, Apple Podcasts is a great one. If you drop one there, I'll read it out on the podcast. You can also follow us on our newsletter, which you can sign up for free at... Bloomsofmarkets.com. And get all of our all of our information in a monthly digest, all of our new blog posts, episodes any you know upcoming events we might be doing and that's about it without further ado let's get into the text we are in ulysses seventh episode which is called eolus that's right and today's text will be taken from pages 117 through 121 my edition which is the 1990 vintage international edition so we're going to read three headline sections dermot and the first two I kind of want to go through a little quickly. And then the second one, I want to go through very slowly. How a great daily organ has turned out. Mr. Bloom halted behind the foreman's spare body, admiring a glossy crown. Strange he never saw his real country. Ireland, my country. Member for College Green. He boomed that workaday worker tack for all it was worth. It's the ads and side features sell a weekly, not the stale news in the official gazette. Queen Anne is dead. Published by authority in the year 1000 and... Domain situate in the townland of Rossnallis, barony of Tinahinch. To all who it may concern, schedule pursuant a statute showing return of number of mules and genets exported from Ballina. Nature notes. Cartoons. Phil Blake's weekly patent bull story. Uncle Toby's page for tiny tots. Country bumpkins queries. Do it, Mr. Editor. What is a good cure for flatulence? I'd like that part. Learn a lot teaching others. The personal note. M.A.P. Mainly all pictures. Shapely bathers on Golden Strand. World's biggest balloon. Double marriage of sisters celebrated. 
two bridegrooms laughing heartily at each other. Coprani too, printer, more Irish than the Irish. The machines clanked in three-four time, thump, thump, thump. Now if you got paralysed there and no one knew how to stop them, they'd clank on and on the same, printed over and over and up and back. Monkey doodle the whole thing. Want a cool head. Well, get it into the evening edition, councillor, Hines said. Soon be calling him my Lord Mayor. Long John is backing him, they say. The foreman, without answering, scribbled press on a corner of the sheet and made a sign to a typesetter. He handed the sheet silently over the dirty glass screen. Right, thanks, Hines said, moving off. Mr. Bloom stood in his way. If you want to draw the cashier, it's just going to lunch, he said, pointing backwards with his thumb. Did you? Hines asked. Hmm, Mr. Bloom said. Look sharp and you'll catch him. Thanks, old man, Hines said. I'll tap him too. He hurried on eagerly towards the Freeman's journal. Three bob I lent him at Mars. Three weeks. Third hint. Okay, thank you very much. Thoughts on this? It's a nice description of the, yeah, all the contents, the mm-hmm. cliche contents of the paper. Yes. And would that be accurate? Yes. So they had all that stuff. I, I'd say it would be accurate then and now. Like Bloom, you know, knows his business well. Mm-hmm. And he knows that it's the fluff that mm. moves papers. Ads. Yeah. Know. Well, yeah, the fluff and uh, you make your money with the ads. Yeah. yeah. Ads and side features sell a weekly, not the stale news in the official gazette. Mm-hmm. One of my early career ambitions was photojournalism, and I took a course in college on sports photography specifically. And they said, always, you always want to get the player's face in the, the picture because you sell more copies because the mother will buy more copies yeah. of the kid playing high school sports, which is probably what you're taking pictures of, and give it to all their friends and family. Mm-hmm. So. But yeah, no, Bloom, Bloom is right. This is mainly what's in a newspaper, especially a smaller paper. Mm-hmm. You know, this meant for a local audience, which is really, you know, I, I would say dying or mostly dead at this stage, small local newspapers. But mm-hmm. if you, you know, you get a local newspaper f- for our area, it's mm-hmm. all kids sports and school pictures and, yeah. you know, community stuff. Um, yeah, it, it's not really like the, the finer points of the Russia-Ukraine war or mm-hmm. trade deal or... Stuff like that, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Anything else that jumps out to you there? Uh, he's annoyed about the money he's owed that he hasn't yes. been paid yet. Yes. He, Do you I, see Bloom's little gambit here to get the three shillings off uh, Heinz? He's using subtext instead yeah. of being direct about it. He should just be direct about it. So any chance of the three bob you owe me? You know, mm-hmm. that's that's. Yeah. I don't know if this would qualify as passive aggressive because no, Bloom no. is not aggressive. He's just simply passive. Just passive. Yeah, yeah. just be direct about it. Uh, yeah, Heinz is like, oh yeah, I'll go get my money. See you later. Which is not, you know, not really an indictment of Heinz's character. Mm-hmm. Certainly a, a minor defeat for old Bloom. Who's the guy he's talking to up, up top? I don't think they say his name here, but he says... Mr. Bloom halted behind the foreman's spare body, admiring a glossy crown. Strange he never saw his real country. Ireland, my country. Member for College Green. He boomed that workaday worker tack for all it was worth. So he's describing the foreman of the print shop mm-hmm. of the Freeman's Journal. Mm-hmm. And he's admiring him, you know, if he got paralyzed there and no one knew how to stop them so it's kind of like he's he's really the only one that knows how to run all of this elaborate apparatus right then we move on to a little interaction with heinz so heinz is dropping off something for him to print can you guess what heinz is dropping off oh he was writing about the uh the the grave attendees yep. that's right he yep. was the one taking the yep. list of names mm-hmm. 
You got it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. So he's here filing his uh, his notice of attendance at the at Patty Dignam's funeral. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then Bloom talks to him. That's about all there is. Just a few quick notes about the foreman of the Freeman's Journal. His name, he's a real person. His name was Joseph Nanetti. Bloom comments that it's strange he never saw his real country because you can guess by his surname that he's of Italian descent. Mm-hmm. He mentions uh, Cuprani as well, uh, another printer who's also Italian. Mm-hmm. Um, and it shows that Bloom, you know, Bloom was born in Dublin, but he's of foreign ancestry. Mm-hmm. You know, he's ha- half Hungarian. Yeah. His mom was Irish. But people always see him as an outsider. And Bloom is kind of doing the same, same thing same here, thing. right? Yeah. People um, still do the same thing. Because not only is Nanetti, you know, he's has a pretty important position in this Dublin newspaper, um, but he's also a successful politician. Mm-hmm. So he mentions him as member for College Green. What do you think that would mean? Um, a member of Parliament. Yeah. Yeah. So in real life, there were actually two Nanettis. There was a father and son, both called Joseph. Mm-hmm. Um, the character Ineolus is a sort of melange of the two. Nanetti the Younger would be more similar to this foreman printer portrayed in Ulysses, but Nanetti the Elder was a distinguished politician, as Bloom hints. So Heinz addresses him here as counselor. The real Nanetti, and clearly the one here, was elected as a Dublin city councillor in 1898. And Bloom refers to him as a member for College Green um, because he was then subsequently elected as the MP for that constituency in 1900. And Bloom also says, soon be calling him my Lord Mayor, which is a bit prophetic because the real Nanetti would serve two terms as the Lord Mayor of Dublin from 1906 to 1908. Mm -hmm. So that's the guy. There he is. Bloom's delivering his... proposal for an ad heinz delivers his uh his notice of attendance at patrick dignam's funeral Mm -hmm. and uh he's a real guy okay that's about it so let's read the next passage we see the canvasser at work mr bloom laid his cutting on mr nanetti's desk excuse me counselor he said this ad you see keys you remember mr nanetti considered the cutting a while and nodded he wants it in for july mr bloom said the foreman moved his pencil towards it but wait, Mr. Bloom said. He wants it changed. Keys, you see. He wants two keys at the top. Hell of a racket they make. He doesn't hear it. Nanan. Iron nerves. Maybe he understands what I... The foreman turned round to hear patiently and, lifting an elbow, began to scratch slowly in the armpit of his alpaca jacket. Like that, Mr. Bloom said, crossing his forefingers at the top. Let him take that in first. Mr. Bloom, glancing sideways up from the cross he had made, saw the foreman's sallow face... Think he has a touch of jaundice, and beyond the obedient reels, feeding in huge webs of paper. Clank it, clank it. Miles of the unreeled. What becomes of it after? Oh, wrap up meat, parcels, various uses, thousand and one things. Slipping his words deftly into the pauses of the clanking, he drew swiftly on the scarred woodwork. So, what are your thoughts on that passage? And thank you for reading. It seems straightforward. Like, he's just yep. talking to, he has a thing with the keys, mm-hmm. it's like this, they're going yep. to be or like an X. Mm-hmm. Um... Which is reflected in your drawing, I believe. Yeah, that's how I drew. I think I. Yes, oh, I, not I, quite. I do them Yours like a, v. a little a V. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you should be. <laughs> the, 
it's fine. No, that's clear. Like mm-hmm. he's talking to the printer about all yep. the stuff. Yeah. No, it's uh, mm-hmm. what's an alpaca jacket? I'm trying to visualize. Alpaca is like a, a llama. It's like a soft-haired okay. beast from the Andes. I would think he he would be wearing something sensible because you wouldn't mm-hmm. want loose clothing that would get caught in the machine because he gets mm-hmm. thin. Yeah. Um, yeah, he could get seriously hurt. Yeah, there's some like I what I see mainly in this is you know Bloom trying to get his work done. He's trying to get this ad. You know that means mm-hmm. money for him. That's money in his pocket if he gets this ad in. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know there's some you know, some of the things we talked about like the the doubled up phrases the clank it clank it. Mm-hmm. We saw a similar in the last one that the the machines are playing a waltz three four time as a waltz time. Right. Um, so thump 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 oh, thump okay. thump thump yeah. Um, and that Bloom is very distracted by all the noise, but, um, Nanetti's sort of, this is his, um, this is his, his native noisy land. And he, he knows how to kind of like, he mentions he speaks between the pauses and the clanking. He kind of knows how to roll with all the noise. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course we talked about the, the noise of the wind circling around Mm. Eolus's palace. So there's some of that stuff in here, but narratively it's really straightforward. Bloom is really keen to get this ad in. And Mr. Nanetti's like, all right, we can do that. Mm-hmm. It's very uh, unflappable. That That's about it. The, the, the point of interest to me is the next headline section. We're going to talk a lot about this. House of Keys. Like that, see? Two cross keys here. A circle. Then here the name. Alexander Keys, tea, wine, and spirit merchant. So on. Better not teach him his own business. You know yourself, counselor, just what he wants. Then round the top and leaded, the House of Keys, you see. Do you think that's a good idea? The foreman moved his scratching hand to his lower ribs and scratched there quietly. The idea, Mr. Bloom said, is the House of Keys. You know, Councillor, the Manx Parliament. Innuendo of home rule. Tourists, you know, from the Isle of Man. Catches the eye, you see. Can you do that? I could ask him, perhaps, how to pronounce that Voglio. But then, if he didn't know, only make it awkward for him. Better not. We can do that. The foreman said, have you the design? I can get it, Mr. Bloom said. It was in a Kilkenny paper. He has a house there too. I'll just run out and ask him. Well, you can do that and just add a little power calling attention. You know the usual, high class licensed premises, long felled want, so on. The foreman thought for an instant. We can do that, he said. Let him give us a three months renewal. A typesetter brought him a limp galley page. He began to check it silently. Mr. Bloom stood by, hearing the loud throbs of cranks watching the silent typesetters at their cases. Okay, so your thoughts? Thinking, all oh, that design work's going to have to be done by hand. Mm-hmm. Don't have Adobe Photoshop to bail them out. Nope. Or a clip art. This is the Photoshop here. Google image search or whatever, mm-hmm. yeah. So they it would have been very common for artists pre-computer age to have what's called a morgue. Oh. And in the morgue, anytime you had like a magazine or you stumbled across an image that you liked, you'd cut it out with scissors and you'd paste it into a book and you'd organize it by subject. So if you ever had like a job that required visual reference, you would go to your morgue. Mm-hmm. And the older you are, the bigger the morgue. And one of the famous 20th century designers, I mean Bernie Fuchs, but it was somebody like him. His morgue was so big that when he died, he left it in his will to a, a university or institution. Mm-hmm. It was a whole room, rooms of clippings mm-hmm. that he had kept over the years, going back to when he was really young. And the problem is now when we get these kind of jobs, you go to Google image search. But the problem is everybody goes to Google image search and mm-hmm. does the same image search and gets the same results. And sometimes you can tell a hack 
at work because they'll get the first image that comes up and that's all they use. You can, if you see like an illustration, go to, there's an infamous mm -hmm. cartoonist who traces photographs. That's all he does. He goes to Google image search and he, that's all he, there's nothing wrong with visual reference, but there was one of his panels that had a, a crying girl. So the person who was doing this review of him went, did an image search for crying girl and they found the exact, it was number one Google image result. Mm -hmm. That's how lazy this guy is. He didn't even go to page two. Mm -hmm. So, um, but these people would have had like a vast, I I'd imagine like library or mm -hmm. um, a vault, a morgue mm -hmm. of visual reference so that they could throw this stuff together. And it would have required some more, hopefully some organization. Mm -hmm. uh, but you could get lost. And some, but they're all gone now. People threw them out when Google, yeah. when Google came along. These people thought, I won't need that anymore, thank God. Mm -hmm. And they would get an extra room or two back in their house. Sure. So you you gonna chuck it all out, yeah. but it would be if if there's like some old fart out there who has like their image more because like that's gold donated now that's, to that's, a university archive. That's image or, reference that cannot yeah. be replicated, and if it's well like organized, you can you could get all kinds of stuff from that. Nobody else would have access to that. Yeah. It would be like a, your own private mini Google, and it would guarantee mm -hmm. you like very unique uh, image mm -hmm. reference. But yeah. Yeah. So that that's what I take when I read that passage mm. and my brain was going through mm. like all yes. of that, like what's that going to take? And the guy just says, yeah, we can do that. Mm -hmm. like, wow. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Yeah. Bloom is, is really like hard selling Nanetti here. And he's like, yeah, yeah, we could do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this kind of sets Bloom on his little quest here um, because he saw a similar ad in a Kilkenny paper um, and he says, I'll just run out and ask him. So he's going to go find Alexander Keyes because he knows where he is and ask him, you know, his opinion about this and then come back. And we're going to see Bloom now kind of go in and out of the scene. Yeah. Um, and then I know for sure that Nanetti does not have this image in his morgue because Bloom has to go dig it up at the National Library mm -hmm. where he once again will cross paths with the other characters who are in the National Library. Right. But that will be a few episodes hence. Um, okay, anything else that you find interesting? No, that was that's what got me going. Yep. Bloom's still trying to figure out how to teach Molly to pronounce the Italian word voglio. Yeah. Because he thinks she's saying it wrong. And he thinks about asking Nanetti, yep. who he views as an Italian. And as far as I know, probably didn't speak Italian. Yeah. Very little information about him. But um, I don't think he spoke Italian. Yeah. He might have. I don't know. Most of the fish and chip shops in Dublin and Ireland at the time would have been by Italians. There was some part of Italy that there was a huge migration of people from that place mm. and they all just started these fish and chip shops. Mm -hmm. And of course, Beshoff's the Russian from the battleship Potemkin, Beshoff's fish and chips in Dublin oh. were also run by an emigrant. So it was just one of those things that emigrants went to. So I would, yeah. maybe there's something similar going on here with the printing, like he brought expertise from the continent and... Mm -hmm. You know, he's, yeah, but once you're born in a country, I think he was Irish born though, at least yeah. the younger. So uh, yeah, it would be common to forget yeah. that kind of stuff very quickly. But again, I'm not sure. There's not a ton of information out there on jo on Joseph Nanetti Jr. or Senior. Hmm. I yeah, I think that he they were both important people in their day, but like, you know, weren't like big movers and shakers of the era. So that's all of our reading. Um, but this House of Keys section really kind of sets Bloom off on his quest, at least for the early part of Ulysses. Well, really, we're kind of moving into the middle part of Ulysses. But um, let's talk about Alexander Keys in Ulysses and then the symbolic imagery of Keys that we see throughout the novel. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Alexander Keys was a real person 
Um, he was a real tea, wine, and spirit merchant in Dublin in Joyce's era. And he had shop fronts, I think, that, you know, were in different parts of the city over time. The real keys, though, was less keen to advertise in the Freeman's Journal than his fictional counterpart. Keys ran very few ads in the newspapers of the day. Um, I think it was just historically less common for people to run newspaper ads then. Mm-hmm. Um, but for Keyes' personal experience, he had a terrible experience. I would say a straight-up fiasco trying to advertise in print jur- journal- journalism at that time. In 1896, Keyes bought a month's worth of ads in the weekly Irish Figaro. And the first week's ad promoted the business of Alexander Kays, K-A-Y-E-S. Mm-hmm. So they misspelled his name. Um, and so while this orthographical error was corrected in subsequent editions, other words were spelled wrong. Uh, I think in one week there was, it, it included the word warehouse man and it came out warehouse ma. Jesus. So uh, unsurprisingly, Keys did not renew his ad with the Figaro. And it seems that Keyes just didn't advertise with any of the Dublin dailies after that, including the Freeman's Journal or the Kilkenny People, as Bloom says in Ulysses. So this would have been eight years prior, I think. So a lot of this history is based on an article that appeared in the James Joyce Quarterly called um, Without Crossed Keys, colon, Alexander Keyes' advertisement in the Irish Figaro, which includes images. So if you want to go see some of these and read the whole story, I would recommend looking that up. You can find a link in the show notes accompanying this at our website or at our Patreon page. So, and I mention this because I'm about to reference something visual that you won't be able to see in the audio version of this. So Keyes' ad in the Figaro wasn't nearly as snazzy as the one that Bloom cobbles together here in Ulysses, which we'll talk about the symbolism of that momentarily. The real-life ad lacked that signature crossed Keys logo most you know, significantly. The Figaro ad was text-only, um, as were all the other ads that shared the page. It was pretty common in those days. This is really before the kind of culture of graphic design that you were referring to kind of kicked off. Bloom pushes here for a little par calling attention. We kind of talked about that in episode 113 as being like an advertorial, a paid advertisement that looks like an ad. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of, he says, just a little puff. It's kind of, you know, it's telling you how great Alexander Key's uh, tea, wine, and spirit merchants are. But there's no puff piece anywhere in the Figaro. It just didn't appear. Given all of Key's grief trying to get this ad and the paper and promote his business. It's kind of nice to see that his ad was given immortality in Ulysses and actually in a much nicer form. Mm -hmm. So I I do want to show you this here. Um, So I didn't take the whole page in the, the article I referenced. It's a full page of ads and it looks, I just took the top third. Mm -hmm. Would you know this was advertisements? No, it looks like from a distance, it looks Mm -hmm. like uh, articles, like, Yes. Yeah, small news, news announcements. And to make this next bit easier for you, can you? I, I've only given you the top third. Can you find Alexander Keyes' ad? No. Well, it's because it's for Alexander Keyes. Oh. 
Yeah. And in a font that looks like something from the Wild West, which I always found very hard to read. That very blocky uh, thing with the big square serifs. Well, in fairness, it was the 1890s and that was Wild West times. Yeah, but they got a fairly... Amusements is spelt sans serif. Mm-hmm. And Hengler's popular circus troupe, which is also mentioned in Ulysses. Much easier to read that page. font. Yeah, no, I think he got shortchanged. That's, it's a, oh, he it's, absolutely it's, did. It's a very unreadable font. Yeah. yeah. So not only is he here... With his name misspelled, yeah. but he's right above Bo's Tees, uh, James Bow family grocer and wine merchant. So he's yeah. right next to his competitor, whose stuff is all spelled correctly. Yeah. And then he's... In a much bigger font, too. The yeah. same kind of crappy font as well. Mm-hmm. Very um, extended font. Yeah. But bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, which it's, it's definitely... That's that's vicious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's deliberately getting shortchanged. And like there's a, a separating line that separates mm-hmm. Bo's T's. There's mm-hmm. no separating line on the top of his to, to distinguish it from cyclists, visitors, travelers, and others. Mm-hmm. And the then electric there's, there's, there's a run on all the L- other. Let me jump in too before we um, slander too greatly a defunct newspaper. I don't know that they did this to him on purpose. I think this is just the way ads were done in the mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. and that they did a shoddy job. Mm-hmm. Through incompetence rather than intention. His name is very long. Mm-hmm. Um, that that probably necessitated the short, the the mm-hmm. smaller text. Keys Tees would have been a better name, and then see Bose Tees. <laughs> Keys Tees has bro- got a rhyme. Yeah, Keys Tees. Like how can you? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I I wonder maybe he was more interested in the wine and spirit side of the business. Mm-hmm. I, for some reason that feels accurate to me, but I can't say for sure. Yeah. So let's go back to Keyes' ad in Ulysses. So, spoiler alert, only for you, Dermot, but we don't know the fate of Keyes' ad by the end of Ulysses. It's um, something that I think in my notes here, I have the quote from Ithaca, but Bloom is very frustrated because he's unable to like fully get what he wants out of this ad. So mm. if Bloom ever manages to get Keyes' ad to print, and one reason I'm being withholding with that information is it. It's part of the story of Eolus, so we'll get to it in like several months' time okay. in podcast time. Anyway, I think if Bloom ever got Keyes' ad to print, it will be worthy of at least four months' renewal, not just the three, because it's truly a work of art. I would say it's worthy of Edward Bernays or Don Draper, the great admin of history. Mm. Um, on its face, it is an obvious pun on the name Keyes. But there are multiple levels of meaning concealed within those simple crossed keys. Um, Bloom intends it to have a political meaning. He says right out, innuendo of home rule. The crossed keys also conjure religious and economic and personal meaning for Bloom and his peers. So scholar Mark Austin describes how Bloom's quest for renewal of this ad mirrors his personal quest for renewal at home and like odysseus his hopes for renewal in this case with keys's ad are ultimately dashed by eolus and who's in this case editor miles crawford who we haven't met in the narrative yet but we will he's very entertaining uh, even before crawford's denial keys had only offered bloom a partial renewal as we'll see so bloom runs out and finds keys and keys is like i'll do two months and he has to come back. And they said, no, three months or nothing. And so Bloom is kind of caught between, you know, these two. Uh, unlike Odysseus, though, Bloom never achieves his symbolic renewal because Odysseus does eventually make it back to Ithaca. Bloom doesn't get his renewal of the ad, which he mentally, ah, he mentally notes it as an imperfection. 
That's the term he uses, an imperfection in the Ithaca episode. What could obtaining renewal through an emblem of two keys crossed offer our gentle Irish Odysseus? Lots of things. So let's start with that innuendo of home rule. So what, what do you hear in that phrase? Why is that significant here? He wants to suggest home rule, but without <laughs> saying it overtly. Mm -hmm. So he's going to dog whistle it. Mm -hmm. um, so that it doesn't off-put people who just want to drink tea. Mm -hmm. So you still want unionists to buy your tea. Because mm -hmm. money's money. Um, and, uh, but, but then like signal mm -hmm. subtly to your mm -hmm. you know, people who recognize it will recognize it. Those who don't, won't. Mm -hmm. so. And home rule, just for any brand new listeners? Um, devolved government for mm -hmm. Ireland. Yes. Uh, the Parnell project of mm -hmm. having the Irish Parliamentary Party, of having basically milk toast powers devolved to Dublin mm -hmm. that would give them control over education, mm -hmm. health, roads, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. A little like what Scotland has today. Mm -hmm. Not, but actually even less than what Scotland mm -hmm. has today. It wasn't, it wasn't radical at all, but it was enough to get the unionists in the north all ready to kill people. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it was a very hot topic in Bloomsday. Mm -hmm. It was a very mild proposal, but the idea of Irish home rule or mm -hmm. Irish devolved government, but it was, uh, an, I'd say, an unachieved political dream for many still. And definitely for anyone with a more nationalist bent or typically Irish Catholics would tend to support home rule, mm -hmm. which is more complicated than that. But, you know, this is going to be a long episode already. Do you know what the House of Keys is? No. You'd be forgiven if you didn't. No. But the I the House of Keys is the name of the lower house of parliament of the Isle of Man. Mm -hmm. And you can see their emblem here. Okay. Can you describe that emblem yeah, for Yeah, it's a Triskelion design, the old Celtic thing of the three um, spiral loops, but it's th three legs mm -hmm. in a shield. So it's like a heraldic, feudalized mm -hmm. heraldic version of that, I mm -hmm. assume. Yep. And you can find that. Um, you'll be able to find that in our show notes or in the we, video. We used version. to occasionally get 50 pence pieces from the UK. They turn mm -hmm. up in our money because this is before the whole modernized, you know, the mm -hmm. Euro, Euro business. I seem to have a memory of being you could just exchange them because mm -hmm. um, they were still shuttled around mm -hmm. and uh, they would have the, the three legs on okay. them. Okay. So. They're from the Isle of Man? Yeah. So the Isle of Man is interesting. I will admit, I never quite understand what the Isle of Man is. Like, yeah. I know physically what it is, but like, yeah. what country is it part of? Because it's not quite in the UK, but it's mm. not quite not in the UK. It's a principality. Yeah. Does it have a prince? I think technically Prince Charles was the head of state. I'm not sure. I See, I this is know. exactly. So if you're know about the isle of man i know they have the that race there I where know, people die and that's all i know yeah, i know charles is the duchy yeah. of something or other and it makes him very rich he, uh, william yeah. has that now so it might be i if it's a principality there's got to be like a nominal prince in charge right. right yeah but um yeah no it's i think it suits governments to have these odd little islands where yeah you, you have a bit of cover it's like a tax is it a tax oh, yeah, shelter yeah uh, riders who live there don't pay tax okay um well, that's where we should move then yeah <laughs> I wouldn't mind. But, so the Isle yeah. of Man, uh, shout out to any uh, Manx listeners or any Manx cats. Um, they had achieved a limited home rule beginning in the 1860s. And that's mm -hmm. where that House of Keys comes from. That's why they have their own parliament. So if you call the Alexander Keys's advertisement the House of Keys, that's where the innuendo of home rule comes in. Mm -hmm. uh, Bloom's Cross Keys could be a homey little reminder to attract 
Manx tourists, like he suggests, or it could be a subtle call for the Irish to wrest a bit of power from London. Mm. Ireland's desire for political home rule parallels Bloom's own desire to rule his own home in the face of Blaze's Boylan's incursion. Mm. So that it also has that subtext. Poor Bloom has forgotten his key and his other pair of trousers that morning. Do you recall that? He's he he left home twice. And left his key in his other pants. Mm-hmm. And he's he does the thing we've all done, which is he's like, oh, I have to remember to get that. And then he doesn't. So Bloom is is a, a keyless key holder. Right. Which we'll, we'll come back to that imagery. Uh, so he has lost the power of his house keys. Or he's lost control of the keys of house at the very least. Mm. And is now trying to project some power with a house of keys. Bloom has... Um, I think subconsciously integrated crossed keys then is a symbol of power here, a political power as is evident when they appear as the keys to the city of Dublin in Circe. So there's a scene in Circe, which has a lot of stuff in it um, where Bloom is being exalted by his fellow Dubliners raised up as the greatest among them. And Alexander J. Keyes steps forth from the crowd to ask, when will we have our own house of keys? And Bloom, like any other politician, real or hallucinated, offers up a litany of pledges, vowing to bring all people together in unity, ending with free money, free love, and free lay church in a free lay state. Hmm. Keyes, you know, is again a symbol of political power for Bloom there. Right. All right. Any thoughts on that? No, it's just strange that the Isle of Man had more power than Ireland. That's that's what that's why I always feel like there's something going on there. <clears throat> like there's some use that powerful people saw for that in a way they didn't see in Ireland. <clears throat> like Ireland getting too much power would cause them trouble and make it difficult for them to get to their cozy estates in the countryside. <clears throat> so <clears throat> uh that's a that's a topic for another day, which we've already covered on several other episodes. So listen to the back catalog. Another Interpretation of these crossed keys by scholar Mark Austin is that these two keys crossed are a double cross, and Bloom and the other Irish folks are being double crossed by economics. So Austin points out that the crossed keys could have this, you know, meaning of trickery, a symbolic betrayal rather than renewal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so during that above scene that we just mentioned in Circe, the crowd eventually turns on Bloom after he makes this litany of promises. Parnell's crusade for home rule evaporated when the Catholic Church disavowed him. Uh, and I believe as well as the Freeman's Journal disavowed him, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which was seen as a betrayal by his supporters. So that that kind of backstabbing and betrayal is definitely a strong theme in Ulysses as a result because Joyce was a big supporter of Parnell. The tea that Keyes sells is produced on the backs of the most exploited citizens of the British Empire. Hmm. Right? Or and, said that the British working class were in India. Yes. Hmm. The same empire exploiting the Irish who purchase and consume the tea. Mm-hmm. So in this example, then, the cross keys are stripped of political potency by this immediacy of commerce. So economics takes priority over any overt political ideal because ultimately keys is in business to sell tea, wine, and spirits and not political idealism. Mm -hmm. The cross keys can offer nothing more than a vague innuendo, right? 
unlikely to lead to any bold political action against the established order. No one with any real power would attempt to prevent Keyes including such an insinuation in his ad because there is zero chance in 1904 that anyone would be moved to revolution by such a subtle symbolism. So it's it, it shows political power or the symbol of political power, but it embodies no true power of any kind. It's just a symbol. Right. Joyce frequently throughout Ulysses will portray the Irish in a state of paralysis in an occupied country. So they're kind of happy to sit around a pub or a committee room or a newsroom and remember the good old days, but they do very little to actually change their lot in life. And in fact, they're often complicit in the very system that oppresses them. So I think a tea merchant could symbolize that in the, within the British Empire. So... Following this, we'll, we'll see further on in Eolus that Bloom goes to Dylan's auction rooms to find keys because he's bidding in an auction mm -hmm. uh, to get the renewal. And we learn in the Wandering Rocks episode that the Daedalus sisters are also at Dylan's selling their family's furniture in order to survive. Mm. So I think Bloom sees Stephen's sister Dilly outside of Dylan's after he leaves the Freeman's Journal offices in Lestragonians. But she's actually there. They're selling anything that isn't nailed down in their house because Simon is such a drunk that he drinks all the family's money. And so the children who are still stuck at home, unlike Stephen, are, you know, on the brink of starvation. Mm -hmm. The poor in the system must pawn their most meager possessions to those enriched by imperial trade. So the Dilly Deadlisses have to sell all their worldly possessions to people like Alexander Keyes, who makes his money off of imperial trade. Uh, like I said, um, even Bloom will benefit financially from Molly's concert tour with Blazes Boylan, though it makes him a cuckold in a sort of parallel personal situation. Hmm. So are you depressed by all this talk of imperialism? I know, because the lads will be along in Easter 1916 to mm -hmm. blow it all up, so... Well, if you're not depressed enough, then let's talk about the Vatican. Have you ever seen the coat of arms of Vatican City? No. Well, you're about to. Tell me what you see. Uh, two keys crossed in the center like an X. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with a papal crown on top. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what color is the uh, the background? Uh, red. Yes. So there are two keys crossed in saltire, which is the heraldic symbol for this. Mm -hmm. uh, or I, I learned heraldic language for certain parts of Ulysses, so I want to use it. Hmm. It's completely superfluous <laughs> description. Um, on, a, on a red background, uh, on a red shield. So um, the Va Vatican is a seat of entrenched power with immense influence over Ireland. Remember Stephen said that Ireland has two ma masters, an Italian and an English. Mm -hmm. um, so there they are. Um, this is this symbol is also known as the keys of heaven. So this emblem is made of two keys, one silver and one gold, the cross diagonally on a red shield. Like I said, the keys in the coat of arms are a symbol of Saint Peter, like in your illustration, as is stated in Matthew sixteen nineteen, which I would ask that you could read in a most biblical fashion. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whosoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Okay. So given Bloom's spotty track record with Catholicism, I think we can assume that he doesn't recognize as the symbol of papal supremacy. Mm. Yeah. But Joyce expects us to. 
notice that. Mm. He expects his readers to pick up on it. Right. Um, so here we are. The red background is even incorporated in Cersei when Bloom is given the keys of the city. So remember we talked about he gets exalted and then cast down. Uh, and the line in Cersei says, the keys of Dublin crossed on a crimson cushion are given to him. Mm. So mm, we're definitely meant to recognize that, even if Bloom didn't. Uh, when interpreting the crossed keys, Bloom considers a political interpretation in the morning, but concludes with a religious one at the end of the night. So there's a, a passage in Ithaca where he connects a bunch of his actions throughout the day with symbols that come from from Judaism. Mm -hmm. So like his burnt kidney in the morning becomes a burnt offering. There are several others. But this one I found very in interesting because he sort of parenthetically describes Kiza's ad as Urim and Thummim uh, in his, his you know, interesting recap of the day in Ithaca. Do you know what these words mean? Nope. I don't claim that I'm pronouncing them correctly. Do you want to see their spelling? Oh, it looks uh, Urim and Thummim. Now I think it would be probably Hebrew. Yeah, definitely Hebrew. So the Urim and Thummim are two stones, one black and one white, mm -hmm. uh, kept in the breastplate of the high priest, and they're described in Exodus 28.30. Also, put the Urim and the Thummim in the breastpiece, so they may be over Aaron's heart whenever he enters the presence of the Lord. Thus, Aaron will always bear the means of making decisions for the Israelites over his heart before the Lord. Okay. Any thoughts? Mm -hmm. All right. Have you heard of this before? No. That's fine. There are a lot of unknowns when it comes to the Urim and Thummim. But some believe they can be used for divination. So one interpretation that I read said the stones could be placed in a bag and drawn to answer yes and no questions, hmm. right? Hmm. Uh, the symbolic meaning of these stones is likewise uncertain, though there are plenty of interpretations. And these include uh, lights and perfection, guilt and innocence, and revelation and truth. Right. So... Uh, their divinatory power means they're able to reveal the will of God to their user. Hence the symbolic closeness to the heart of the high priest Aaron. That would have been a much better Indiana Jones MacGuffin, <laughs> wouldn't it? Then, then which one? The Crystal Skull, anyway. Oh, well, okay. I mean, I think they went for the Ark of the Covenant. It's a bit yeah, flashier. Uh, yeah, everyone's you know? heard of that. Indiana yeah. Jones and the Urim and Thummim. If you're going to do something connected to Moses, you want the one that was interesting, the Cecil B. DeMille or whoever made that movie. Indiana Jones and the Stones of God. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, their, their dual nature and connection to the divine correspond them then in that way with the keys of heaven. Indiana Jones and God's balls. Uh, which confer paradise only by the will of God it symbolized the duality of absolution and excommunication. Mm, okay. Any anything else, Crew? Do you want to say oh, no. about God's balls? No. Okay. Good. All Look, right. People come here for the blaspheming. If you read this book, you're in. You're in for the blasphemies. That's the one thing that makes people angry at me in emails. It's weird. So I'm, it? If if anyone writes me an email about God's balls, <sighs> I'm just going to forward it to you, and you can talk to him. Yeah. Uh, you, gonna... you you described a Spanish blasphemy that shocked me, like where I was like wow like you think being irish you've heard it all well, i don't remember it was i did we do it on the podcast it was i blank on god and the blank is a defecation and it's a four-letter <laughs> word and i'm not even going to say it because it's so horrendous I don't and, remember. Some, and some guy said it on tv it slipped out and 
Did I, I said this? Yeah, I'm on, <laughs> on God. I'm like, what? You remember you telling me about this a few years ago? And people were like, what? Uh, okay. Uh, well, I have I have more about the symbolism of cross keys. Uh, they are both sacred and temporal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Meaning worldly. Uh, which allows keys as products to promise the consumer renewal in their earthly home and in the form of home rule and the salvation of their everlasting soul in the afterlife. Kind of like plum trees potted meat. Mm. Uh, Alexander Keyes is, of course, a spirit merchant. Uh, mm. Just like a pope or high priest. Okay. No difference. Uh, Keyes' ad hints at the ability of his product to open the gates of heaven and abode of bliss, if you will. Um, there is an elitism to his consumerist route to spiritual restoration. No, only those who can pay their way can access Keyes' keys of heaven, hmm. right? Like the Christian heaven, not everyone is worthy of entry into Keyes' paradise. And those who can pay their way have easier access than those who cannot. That's another symbolism that can be found in Keyes' ad. Let's talk about this idea of key holders, right? Keys confer power in Ulysses to the key holders. However, scholar Patrick White sees these key holders as scions of a diminished power in line with the cyclical view of history that Joyce took from John Battista Vico's view of history that the people in Ulysses are living in this period of cultural disintegration, of being a copy of a copy of a copy of the Age of Heroes. Mm-hmm. So Bloom and his friends are less potent reincarnations of those lofty figures of a bygone age of heroes. Thus, Odysseus has become a low-level ad canvasser in Dublin. If you want to know more about this, we talk about it a lot in episode 10 called Nestor. So in the cases of Keyes' ad, White states that, quote, the keys from the papal arms of the previous divine age now participate for Alexander J. Keyes in the religion of the period of disintegration whose god is mammon. What is mammon? God of money. Yeah, that's right. The people that Bloom and Stephen meet throughout the course of June 16th are also diminished forms of these ancient ideals. So, like in Telemachus, the first episode, we meet Buck Mulligan, a sarcastic blasphemer who, by the end of the episode, holds the key and by extension the power to the domain of our diminished prince Stephen Dedalus, is now totally dispossessed so bloom must consent with his uh, contend with his own set of key holders right and he by rights is a key holder but he left his keys in his other pants Mm -hmm. so he's not a key holder so consider john o'connell the caretaker of glasnevin cemetery we made much of his holding of keys and now we're going to bring it back around yeah right so when we first meet o'connell in hades he is puzzling two long keys at his back Mm -hmm. is that more interesting now Mm mm-hmm you don't sound that interested. Okay. <laughs> Bloom takes notice and even connects O'Connell's keys with Keyes' ad. So here's what Bloom says back in Hades. You might remember reading this. Mr. Bloom admired the caretaker's prosperous bulk. All want to be on good terms with him. Decent fellow, John O'Connell. Real good sort. Keys, like Keyes' ad. No fear of anyone getting out. No pass out checks. What is the source of John O'Connell's power? So he's the keeper of Glasnevin, right? That's right. right. He, he's got keys for the gates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, the like St. Peter, keys of heaven. So it's kind of right there. Yep. It? You're not, we're not, it's not that vast stretch to talk about the parallels mm-hmm. with the yeah. St. Peter and all that. 
Right. O'Connell holds both keys and powers. All want to be on good terms with him, as Bloom says. Mm. But he doesn't know the depth of the power. O'Connell is also a spirit merchant of sorts, Mm -hmm. when you think about it. Mm -hmm. He provides the souls of his customers a comfortable berth into the next life. Uh, Austin describes him as a terrestrial analog of St. Peter. Mm. Uh, Unlike St. Peter, O'Connell does not preside over heaven, but instead over an earthly realm of the dead, of grief, putrefaction, and corpse-eating rats. So either way... His psychopompic power is still governed by that pair of keys. And when O'Connell resurfaces in Cersei, he calls out the location of Dignam's post-mortem digs, revealing O'Connell's house of death to be a house of keys. So he gives Patty's post-mortem address, which is burial docket number UP 85,000, field 17, house of keys, plot 101. So another... um, person we'll see in the coming pages here in Eolus that holds keys and worldly power is the Evening Telegraph editor, Miles Crawford, uh, who is sort of lost in a world of memory, but we do see him, quote, jingling his keys in his back pocket uh, while reminiscing about his journalistic heroes of the past rather than going out and hunting down any current scoops. He's lost in nostalgia and memory. Mm -hmm. Uh, you'll You'll like Crawford when we get to him, I think. So after kind of just just some messing around, the newsmen prepare to head toward the pub when Crawford asks, quote, where are those blasted keys? And then he, quote, fumbles in his pockets, pulling out the crushed type sheets. So Crawford is a key holder struggling to locate the source of his power, lost amongst the disorderly type sheets, which are the tools of his trade. Crawford, like Peter, holds the keys to the kingdom, Though Crawford's kingdom is the Evening Telegraph, a newspaper in decline, uh, in a golden age, he might have presided as the voice of his people and and his city, Uh, St. Peter of the Press, the guardian of ideas. Mm -hmm. However, in this Viconian age of disintegration, he represents that era's voice in the guise of a confused old man, unable to fish his keys out of his pocket and his only motivation an impending pint or two. Mm. So... Bloom approaches St. Peter Crawford in search of renewal, commercial rather than spiritual renewal, and is thrice denied, evoking Peter's denial of Christ in the New Testament. A less saintly Peter. <laughs> or a, pre, a pre-sainted Peter. All right, so those are the key holders we meet. Okay. They're not doing much good for Bloom. Hmm. Let's talk about the, the keyless, the, the non-key holders, which are our two main characters, Stephen and Bloom. The two keys that feature most prominently in Ulysses are not those that unlock a home rule parliament, a heavenly gate, or even an ad for spirits. Our protagonists, Bloom and Deadless, have found themselves in a state of keylessness. You laughing at me? (laughs) (laughs) Um, They are locked out of their respective kingdoms. Like we said, Bloom twice forgot his keys that morning as he parted ways with Molly, while Stephen consciously discarded his key with the usurper Buck Mulligan, choosing not to return to their shared Martello Tower. Keylessness in this case represents disenfranchisement. Bloom and Stephen are locked out of the traditional halls of power due to their outsider status. But we can see they have both surrendered the keys to their domestic lives as well. So they're described in Ithaca as, quote, and this is paraphrased, redacted a little bit, uh, quote, premeditatedly and inadvertently keyless couple. Hmm. 
Though they are both keyless, the circumstances of their keylessness are not the same. Bloom, inadvertently keyless, because he has left his key in his other pair of trousers that morning, his hand mechanically goes to his pocket where they ought to be met with keys, but instead they just find an empty pocket. So metaphorically, Bloom's foreign heritage is Judaism, soft demeanor, mark him as an outsider, always the the odd man out, whether or not he chose that status. Um, And in Cersei, Bloom appears as a youth wearing, quote, a gents sterling silver Waterbury keyless watch, suggesting that he may never have had the metaphorical keys at all. And so it's fitting that Bloom would search for symbolic renewal in a set of keys Mm -hmm. in the ad. On the other hand, Stephen, non-Serviam Deadless, has rejected religion, academia, and the literary establishment. He has chosen to relinquish his key to Mulligan in order to strive for power on his own terms. Uh, Before Stephen departs Eccles Street for parts unknown in Ithaca, he makes it clear that embarking on his path is his choice, though Bloom doesn't fully understand. So there's a little passage here you can read. He affirmed his significance as a conscious, rational animal proceeding syllogistically from the known to the unknown and a conscious, rational reagent between a micro and a macrocosm ineluctably constructed upon the incertitude of the void. So would you mind parsing that? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't outlined what it means. If uh, <laughs> so proceeding syllogistically from the known to the unknown syllogistically Aristotelian logic, right? Mm-hmm. Like yep. he's trying to like reason his way through life from yep. the known to the unknown. So he's trying to discover things or whatever. Mm-hmm. And a conscious, rational reagent between a micro and a macrocosm. <laughs> You're the microcosm and the universe is the macrocosm. You're a microcosm. Uh, ineluctably <laughs> constructed. Ineluctably is a $5 word. Constructed upon the incertitude of the void. So the void being like the Nietzschean idea, I guess, of the, you know, the vast chasm mm-hmm. of the modern idea of the universe is this vast, limitless, unbounded space, atoms mindlessly in motion, you know, chaos and all that. So, yeah, his it's very nihilistic kind of, you know, world. So yeah. this is, the void is Bloom's open front door. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so that's that's how he describes leaving Bloom's house. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's so, very um, uh, exaggerated or... Um, yeah. They were pompous, but it's very melo- a lengthy, melodramatic. The lengthy 17th episode is pretty much written like that. Okay. So we'll read that sometime. Okay. Uh, so Stephen proceeds syllogistically from the known, his current life, mm-hmm. to the unknown, mm-hmm. whatever comes next, right. through the incertitude of the void, the front door of Seven Eccles Street. Right. The exit from Seven Eccles is a microcosm of the, jo- the choice that lies before a young deadless macrocosmically Stephen has additionally proceeded syllogistically into the unknown by choosing not to return to the martello tower and if he follows in the footsteps of his creator his homeland of ireland okay mm-hmm. so this you know the reason you know because it's kind of interesting is bloom brings Stephen home after all the madness of cersei offers him a place to stay and Stephen rejects it mm. the comfort of home you know, so it has this much greater symbolic power why Stephen would choose to do that. Mm. Um, Stephen has used logic and reason, syllogistically, to fly by the nets of the paralysis he sees in the society around him. To possess the keys of this kingdom is to possess merely the keys to his own jail cell, and thus he forgoes the symbol of power altogether. 
to embrace the life that he wants. Hmm. Bloom faces the void in a very different way, believing, quote, That as a competent, keyless citizen, he had proceeded energetically from the unknown to the known through the incertitude of the void. Right. So Bloom accepts his keylessness. He may be inadvertently keyless, but not unwittingly so. Mm-hmm. Entering Seven Echoes for s- Street for him is traversing the void from an unknown, hostile world to a known place of comfort, despite the current disarray in his marriage. Um, I suppose the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. Mm-hmm. Bloom views himself as keyless, yet competent, right? He may have little power, but he's good at what he does. He knows what he's doing. He has developed the necessary skills to exist in a society that wasn't built for him and isn't quite sure what to do with him. Mm -hmm. He has adjusted to his lot in life, even if his keysless state stands out as an imperfection in his mind as he drifts off to sleep. Mm -hmm. Uh, Due to his maturity, he can tolerate life's little imperfections in a way that a 22-year-old simply cannot. And the world built by his creator is a keyless world. After all, there is no key to decipher all of Ulysses' cryptic secrets. Apart from blooms and barnacles. Apart from blooms and barnacles. <laughs> the end. Okay, so that's the symbolism of the keys. Hmm. How do you feel? I think we're so great. We <laughs> should get both parachutes. <laughs> well, there are two of us, so it's less ridiculous than the... The Father Ted you're quoting. Mm. Do you have any closing thoughts? No, no, that's very good. Well, thank you. Mm. Yeah, so, you know, it's it's this funny little ad that Bloom wants to create. Mm. Um, people have recreated it. You can easily find it on the internet. In Mark Austin's book that I've quoted here quite a bit, uh, The Economy of Ulysses, he reconstructs his own little version of it. If you want to mm. take a look at that, you can find it online or in your library. Yeah, no, it's 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 just this odd little symbol that's very specific and just has a, a ton of symbolic potency to it. Mm. Um, that's why you see Alexander Keys pop up again and again throughout Ulysses. Mm. And, you know, Joyce and Alexander Keys cross paths in real life, even though they didn't know it at the time. It, later on in Aeolus, they talk about the Samuel Bush arguing at the, the, the lawyer, this famous lawyer, Samuel Bush, um, arguing at the child's murder trial. Mm-hmm. which Joyce observed when he was 17 years old because he had an interest in the law when he was younger. Right. And so Joyce was able to just kind of be in the gallery watching the trial. Okay. Alexander Keyes was one of the jurors. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that wild? I thought it was Seymour Bush. Seymour. Did I say Seymour Bush? You said Samuel. Samuel Childs and Seymour Bush. Yeah. Because yeah. I remember my Simpsons joke about Mo, Mo going, Seymour Bush. Is there Seymour Bush? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'll never forget that. Okay, thank you for setting me straight. So, mm. all right. I remember that. Uh-huh, but... You know, I was like, do you remember this? And like, mm-hmm. yeah. I've seen more Bush. I if you that. don't remember something, you can just say no. I, I do just say I'm, no frequently. I like I like to give you a chance to, to chime in. I'm look. I'm the the the, the whole placeholder for mortals here. <laughs> like, you're more clever than most mortals. Mm-hmm. So don't worry. Mm-hmm. Look at all the books on the shelf. By those are all Dermot's books. Some of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> some of them some of them all right uh i think that's all for this week all right all right thanks for listening i think this is a pretty long episode yeah all right but it's got lots of good info in hi it. to the isle of man all right yeah if you're from the isle of man send us an email yeah all right all right take care bye